that was my last connection to the ice before I hit head first into some rocks at about 60, 70 miles an hour. So what are you gonna do with your time and energy? Seven million fully navigated dollars a year. Human beings only buy from somebody they trust more than they trust themselves. Today on the show, I'm happy to have Chris Beal. He's a CEO of Connect and Sell. They are a conversation machine on demand. You're telling me a story from your youth where you actually took a fall off of a 800 foot fall onto steep ice. First of all, how did you live through that? And, and what did that do to change the trajectory of your path? That's a, it's one of these things that I wouldn't trade it for anything and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. It was a, a mistake. Some young guys, 14 year old guys, 15 year old guys were climbing a mountain as part of this boy scout thing that we're doing in the Sierras. One of the guys slipped and he actually stopped about 30 feet away from me. I, we were climbing with that on ice axe, which was pretty stupid. We didn't have proper training. We didn't have a rope. We didn't have crampons. And I went out to quote unquote, help him. And that was my last connection to the ice before I hit head first into some rocks at about, I don't know what, 60, 70 miles an hour and blew me up pretty good. But the main thing was the reason it was pivotal was two things that happened afterwards. One was just having to realize that this beautiful experience I had while falling, cause it was really lovely. It was really something watching a little piece of ice, take a chunk out of my arm and watching the drops of blood in the, in the sunlight. And it's just gorgeous. So that's really interesting. Like, like thoughts that one has process you go through when you're falling to your certain death are frankly just beautiful. And who knew? And so then secondly, it's huh, okay. So I've been given another life. I was only 14. What am I going to do with it? And it made me a more serious person, even though a lot of people think I'm not very serious, but I have a lot of fun as a result. So effectively I've had fun doing pretty much everything I've ever done since, including climb a bunch of mountains. So that the second part was later in the day, I actually climbed that mountain alone. And uh, I was in not great shape. My right leg was blown up and I had a, uh, a little skull fracture and that concussion. But hey, those Boy Scouts, they, they went fishing. So oh, I went climbing. And that decision to get back up there and climb that thing, that I think has colored every decision I've ever made, especially in business. Yeah, if you live through something like that, it's the gratitude you have for every day waking up has to be massive. Yeah. Pretty big, pretty big. And it, it made me think, okay, so my mom said something to me a long time ago when I was like six, I was being a selfish little brat. She said, Chris, there, this is back when this was true. There are 3 billion other people on earth. There's only one of you do the math. You know, who are you, who should you care about? You can help a lot of other people. You can only provide yourself so much. You run out of capacity as a receiver of what you can provide as a provider. And you run out of capacity as a receiver very quickly. So what are you going to do with your time and energy? Yeah, it's very true. How long did it take you to recover from that physically? Oh, the recovery wasn't that long. It was two, three weeks. I was pretty good. I played in a tennis tournament five days later, taped the racket into my hand. I couldn't really hold it properly because my right hand was blown out. It was pretty intimidating because I was spraying blood on the forehand side. And I tell you, nobody wants to face an opponent who sprints. Like every time you hit the ball, there's a spray of blood. Nobody wants oh. to <laughs> Hey, you know, somebody, yeah. the mom of one of the players was really pissed off at me. He's like, you shouldn't be allowed to play. Why not? My body. Yeah. So when did the 
entrepreneurship journey start for you? Probably three years before that, I was 11 when I started my first little firm with a friend. And it was always clear to me that if you wanted to have control over stuff, you would work for yourself. It also became clear to me when I got older that I'm a really good employee in one sense. That is, I line up with the firm. I don't have any trouble with that sort of thing. But I'm a really bad employee in another sense, which is I always see things that I think should be changed and then I just want to change them. And in a lot of companies, you, if you find yourself as an employee and you're always pushing to change, then you can get crosswise with folks. Like I, at one point in my life, I worked at a warehouse in Arizona, big foods warehouse. So at first I was a truckloader and then I made a mistake and crushed the tip of the middle finger of my right hand in a truck door and it was not great. So I got put on a forklift. That was great because forklift, you're just cruising around the warehouse and you're taking stuff down from on high and putting it back up there a lot better than loading trucks. But what I noticed from being up is I could watch the flow of all the carts that were being towed around and lined up and prepared to be put on the trucks. And I have a mathematical background that's pretty serious, actually. Even by that, I think I was 22 at the time or something like that. So I noticed that we were just doing it wrong. And if we changed how we worked, we could probably save two or three hours a night. And this is a big crew, this is a crew of 14 people. So I went to the boss and say, hey, what if we change this? So instead of some of the folks being freezer folks and some of us being dry goods pickers, everybody goes in the freezer. We had all the stuff that goes in the front of the trucks lined up. There's five trucks. Then we all do the dry stuff while the frozen's being loaded. And we can run this thing just smooth every night. Oh, we can't do that. Why not? So that's the normal thing is we can't do that. And the normal employee would go as a junior guy, right? I'm just a picker and uh, with a crushed finger. My nature is to push and say, why not? Just ask that question. Why, why or why not? And he's wow, blah, 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 blah. And uh, we pay him, find this, we pay him more in the freezer. I said, okay. And what's that pay call? And he said, we call it freezer pay. I said, who gets it? The most senior guys. I said, what if we call it seniority pay? then everybody can go in the freezer. So by changing the name of the bonus, we all went in the freezer, saved three hours a night, hundreds of thousands of dollars of overtime, great stuff for the company. That's me as an employee, but that's really an entrepreneurial act. I just happen to be, I can line up with whatever's going on because the big economics always come through the company, not around the company. At some point, I finally just went, look, I was working at Martin Marietta, now Lockheed Martin, big aerospace company. I'd done an entrepreneurial thing there. I'd started a software education and training department. I did it because it looked like a need. And I went to a giant book they had. Here's my reasoning. These guys have more departments now than they had back 50 years ago. So there must be a way of making a department. I'm going to find the way that you make a department here and I'm going to make my own. It's a policy bound company. So it must be in a policy book. So I guess I'll go look in the policy book until I find the chapter on how to make a new department. I told my boss I was going to do this and he just laughed. He said, you'll never figure it out. I said, I'm a fast reader. Trust me. I'm going to find it. Found it. Followed the directions. That turns out there was a formula. You had to get a salary grade 50 to sponsor it. You had to write a sort of a charter and a mission. You had to get it approved by certain people. Hey, had my own department. After doing that and realizing I was, I don't know, being I got a lot of attention from the CEO, let's put it that way. I had lunch with him more often than 27-year-old engineer should. 
I finally just decided I should just go out and do stuff with people who want to just do stuff. And that's entrepreneurship. It's not about, I want to conform to somebody's existing policy or whatever you're making your own world. And I know it feels risky to some people, but my experience says for me, the risk is I'm going to push on something as an employee to the point where somebody shoots me anyway. And so I may as well be in a position of being shot by the marketplace. Yeah, I'm glad in the engineering position you didn't crush any limbs in that one. Seems I know we used to we used to fill these full of water, like Titan missiles, the old thing, and then shake them. And I always thought, what if this is bad? Like you could be underneath this. You wouldn't make it. So was Connect and Sell the first business that you you really went for, or were there a couple more before that? Oh, there's a bunch more. So I did my first startup in 1983 and I did it with a guy named John Ryden in Boulder, Colorado. It was called Rappo Software. We turned it into a company called Unison later, U-N-I-S-Y-N. And then the Unisys people stole our name, which is great. And they had to pay us for it, which was even funnier. I, yeah, that was my first one. My thesis was the world of Unix. This won't make sense to a lot of people listening, but today it, Linux is a big deal. A lot of people build on Linux, right? So if you're building in whatever it is, Python on Linux, you're probably a pretty normal kind of developer. And you might be doing web stuff with PHP or whatever, but back then, if you get, roll the clock back to 1981, software was built for computers, not for operating systems. Even though you built for the operating system was welded to the computer. So if you were building for a VAX 11.780, the operating system was called VMS, you might be able to port that to an 11.750. That was it. That was it. You were stuck, right? The cost of software engineers was going through the roof and the cost of hardware was going through the floor. So you draw those curves and you go, hey, somebody better figure out how you can build software for lots of different computers without having to change it. And this thing called Unix clearly fulfilled that promise. So I just said to myself, I'm going to go become a Unix expert and build commercial software on Unix before anybody else is doing it. That way there's a, this tidal wave as it comes in of you know, the cost of software, people going up and the cost of hardware going down will just play to my benefit forever. I don't really have to think very hard about it. I just have to come up with something good. This guy, John Ryden had a good idea, which was to make an ERP system, a MRP2, it was called at the time, based on a couple of existing programs. I said, hey, let's write that on a Unix platform in the C programming language. So I went to Bell Labs and became an expert on Unix and C. I built their curriculum. That was my purpose in that job. And then went out and we did that one. And then did a, I did an entrepreneurial thing with Sun Microsystems where I became an independent guy working for in their world architecting their automated distribution systems, their robots that were, how the robots worked with the business systems when they were shipping stuff. And then got into the world of data in 1992 with a, a company that was just figuring out how to organize all the information about parts that you make stuff from. Went from that to organizing all the world's product information company called Requisite Technology in 96. Did a floor finishing company after that? Cause who wouldn't? It's floor finishing. Makes sense. That's what you do with your software career. It was a high tech go to market around a very specific chemical that fit all of my criteria for high tech. It just 
in the marketplace, it was floor finish. I learned that you shouldn't run a floor finishing company as fast as a software company. That was a wonderful failure. Turned into a like 30% month over month growth followed by fire sale. When we hadn't been through a whole year and we didn't understand the seasonality of the business. And I don't mean seasonality of demand. It turned out it was seasonality of being able to produce the product. Suddenly one day after Halloween in 2004, the product failed everywhere that night. Day before it succeeded everywhere. Why did it fail everywhere? Everywhere, like all over the country. Same product. I don't know. It's all different batches. It's different people doing the work. Everything's different. Turns out everything wasn't different. At midnight out there in those big Midwestern hospitals, they get their heating budget and they turn on the furnace just to make sure it works. Temperature goes up, humidity goes down, floor finish fails. Didn't know why. And I uh, had $2 million of checks from investors on my desk back home. I was in Memphis, needed to get back to Des Moines, Iowa, where we did this thing. And I couldn't take him for ethical reasons because our product suddenly didn't work and we lost the company. That somebody else gained it. Still there. It's called Finish Line Floors. You can go out and look at it. But then did a, a software thing in Silicon Valley for a venture fund, a venture friend of mine. So I don't know if that counts as entrepreneurship. You get paid. And then at some point here, stumbled into this one 12 years ago. Walkers, is that right? Yeah. 12 years ago. A uh, former employee said I should talk to this guy, Sean McLaren. Actually, he said, you should look at my company, Connectance. And I said, I looked at it and I said, do you know what the phrase wholly uninterested means? I said, look, it's a dialer. You got to be kidding. Me. I'm not going to do a dialer company. He goes, no, it's not. It's something else. You got to meet our CEO, Sean, founder and CEO. So I go meet Sean next morning, five minutes in, I go, hey, I'm in. He says, what if I'm not hiring? I said, look, Sean, it's a free country. I can work for whomever I want. You can choose to pay me or not. I recommend paying me. I've heard it stabilizes the employer-employee relationship. So at Connect and Sell, I just re-became an employee, but it's still entrepreneurial. You're building a whole category. You're doing it against the tide because everything in the world of sales this, during all this time has been going like digital, digital. Digital gets harder and harder because digital comes with a tax called digital noise. So digital is always cheap. Cheap is always spam. You just have to wait for it to play out for And then it's the next one. Oh, here's the next one. We're going to do this cheap thing. Turns into spam. And, you know, scarcity creates value and live human conversations are scarce and therefore valuable. And so that's a durable concept, but they're hard to get because people don't answer the phone very easily, which is our business. So I stumbled onto this, fell in love with it, joined that day, that moment as the head of products, no good deed goes unpunished. And eventually somebody said I should be CEO, I think, because they couldn't spell janitor. What was it about that first meeting going into there that convinced you, oh, this is something I could really get into? It was two things. One, it was the math and two, it was the underlying premise. The math was clearly just crazy. You're talking about a TAM consisting of the entirety of everybody who sells business to business. The underlying premise, which was super attractive and I knew would be true for all time. I like durable stuff because you can, if you want to innovate, you want to innovate on a durable platform of some kind, something that's not going to change, right? If you're innovating on top of change, then you got to go innovate again on the thing that changes into. Whereas if you can get something really durable, what's durable? How the human mind works, how are emotions? And now the question is how important are human emotions to B2B sales? I knew from long, hard experience 
human beings only buy from somebody they trust more than they trust themselves to make a decision that could destroy their career. They have to trust one of the sellers more than they trust themselves. That's why most B2B literally doesn't happen. Most pursuits turn into no decision. And so it's okay. So this fact, this trust fact is just hard ground. It ain't going anywhere. And when you combine it with how do you get trust? I happen to be a student of that part of psychology, the perceptual psychology of, about how do we make decisions? And I knew damn well, people don't make decisions based on small amounts of information coming in through their eyes. They make decisions based on huge amounts of information coming in through a channel they can't turn off, which is their ears. It's why podcasting is so popular. Podcasting allows somebody to have feelings about what it is as a receiver that had listened to the podcast that they would never get from reading the transcript. The voice of the people, the voices of the people talking, that makes a difference. And so here you have the whole economy on the line. The B2B economy feeds the B2C economy, which feeds the government economy. So here you have the ground floor of the entire economy that is bottlenecked behind the challenge of getting some emotional connection between two people that can lead to trust. So I just did that math in my head and went, yeah, I'm in. If it's real, I asked him, is it real? He said, yeah. I asked, is it like, do you make money? If you sell it for money, he said, yeah. I said, how much do you do? Is it at scale? He goes, yeah, it's uh, about 7 million fully navigated dials a year. I said, oh, it's at least bigger than a bread box. So that was it. It takes a lot for me to have confidence in something to say, yeah, this is worth jumping into. I don't like fads. I don't like shiny objects. I think that anybody can come up with something that if they don't think it through very far, it might be flippable. The idea of building a company to flip and make money just makes me ill. That's going against what my mom told me back when I was six. Who's that for? That, that doesn't make sense to me. I know it's fine for a lot of people, but it just doesn't make emotional and philosophical sense to me. So I thought this is something that if it, if we can figure it out and it's step-by-step, step, like we've had to figure out this, I, my shirt says flight school on it. We never wanted to teach people to cold call ever, but it turns out that if you're providing 10 times more opportunities to execute on something, you probably, should, you got to get better at it. You're probably going to find out you're not as good as you think. Everybody is, is great at everything until they try it. And then they realize they suck. We amplify suck. So we decided to find a knob to turn down the suck, which we call flight school. And it's live fire training in live cold calls at a pace, 10 times what you would ever experience. And everyone is coached. It's so precise. The first three hours, we coach only the first seven seconds of the conversation, the part that builds trust, because that's the part that counts. You get 95% of the appointment setting benefit out of that. So I like stuff also where it just takes forever like a lot of hard experience to get the full idea. As an example, just today, just literally today, we finally got around to doing something that any idiots would have done a long time ago, which is getting an answer to this question measured. When you talk to somebody, what are the odds that person will visit your website during the conversation? After all, Google's a big company, right? What do they do? They get people to come to your website through advertising, et cetera, et cetera. Huh. Why hadn't we asked this question deeply before? Because we hadn't seen a signal that said that it happened at all. 
we built an attribution report a couple of years ago that looks at opportunities and asks the question for this opportunity, did anybody at your company talk to somebody there before the opportunity closed? That's hard attribution, right? It's like the conversation took place. And then we noticed something. The conversations that set the meetings actually were in the minority with regard to the pipeline. Most of the pipeline was built in negative conversations, not positive conversations. Who would have thunk it, right? I love stuff like that. That to me is the entrepreneurial journey is it's a journey primarily of learning things that can't be learned unless you engage the market with purpose. You got to get beaten up. What was the uh, percentage? I can tell you mine. I want to hear what your report is. Uh... So the report so far is, it says that it's about 60% of folks you talk to visit your website during the conversation or immediately thereafter because they're at their computer and you're boring them and you're bothering them and they may as well look you up so they can dismiss you. It's an defensive play. So it's actually what, during the call or we're talking? No. During, during or immediately afterwards. It generally during is when it starts. Come on, you, you ambushed them. What are they going to do, right? Unless yeah. it's a golf course or what, or surf. Mine is 100% because they always look before they come on the show. Great. Isn't it weird though when you think that's such, a, it's so dumb of us not to have made that connection. But it's also, nobody else made it. When I tell people the number one outcome of a cold call is a visit to your website, they just look at me like I've grown three extra hands. It's known that the purpose of a cold call is to get a meeting. Okay, but is that what actually happens? Only 5% of the time. What about the 95%? Yeah, those are failures. Yeah. Are you so sure that they're failures? Let's go look. Exactly. I'm in the website building business, so I play off that statistic. We should work together on this. I'm working with, there's a company called Signals.ai out of Utah, and they got a really effective, what companies are visiting your website. It's wonderfully done and digested and all that. But hey, if I talk to somebody and their company visits my website immediately, that person visited the website. Who has anything that knows who visited websites at a person level? Nobody. So this would be one of those. So that's an example to me of why entrepreneurship is really cool. Cause you tried doing that in a big company where you're an employee and they're really dedicated to whatever it is they're doing. They have a lot of structure and a lot of momentum and a lot of traditions and all this stuff. And you say, Hey, wait a second. Is it, I know we all think the main thing that's going on here is our service provides a way for people to set meetings, but and they go, no, get your butt out of here. Right. Your pot, the positive, huh, huh. I wonder what's really going on. Entrepreneurs get to do that every day and have to do that every day. And they get to fail at it most of the time. That huh is like, oh, that was a hallucination like chat GPT, but it's okay. You make a point of setting up the business so the business survives your own stupidity. And then occasionally you get to be brilliant. Exactly. So if our listeners wanted to learn about Connect and Sell and use the service, how could they do? The right way to learn about Connect and Sell is to take an intensive test drive. It's a free full day of production. It's insane. It's crazy. Folks have made like Tony Safoyan on his podcast, Cloud and Clear. He's the CEO, founder of Sada, Sada Systems. That's Google Cloud's number one partner. I asked him, did you guys make some money during your Connect and Sell test drive? And he laughed and Billy Franz, his VP says, Chris, we made tens of millions of dollars of pipeline in those three hours. So it could, it's like a lottery ticket. You use it in anger. It's fun. As my wife said, it's the best weight loss program in the world. Your heart rate will be 160 when you go to push that button. 
So that's number one. How do you do that? You go to our website. Hey, connectandsell.com. The little form that says intensive test drive or some such nonsense. You fill it out and just ignore what the salesperson says. They won't try to sell you anything anyway, and just take the test drive. It's a, it's like, uh, it's like an offer to get in a Ferrari 455 and take it out on a Formula One track. It's like that. It's really fun. And then if they want to learn more about the crazy stuff I think about, podcast is not bad. I have a podcast called Market Dominance Guys. It's uh, what, episode 187. It was an attempt to write a book. It failed. However, ChatGPT took the first 25 episodes and in two days we got a book out of it. So that's, you can buy the book, but the book sucks. Podcasts, you can learn about how I believe in Corey Frank, my podcast co-host. We believe you can dominate markets using the human voice 100% of the time. If you're an entrepreneur and you're not talking to people, you should be talking to people. Yeah, I echo that. That's my job. <laughs> thank you, Chris, for coming on the show. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Failing Success. Make sure to smash that subscribe button. I'm your host, Chad Kalecki, and we'll see you next time. Yeah.